It's the best illustration of our theme that I can find and also introduction to our subject. This is a famous piece of graffiti, dates around 225 AD. It was discovered on the Palatine Hill in Rome, on the wall of a house which was probably used for the training of imperial pages. You can now see it in the Caturian Museum in Rome. It's a crude scratching graffiti of a crucifixion with a human figure on a cross. What is unusual is that the human figure has the head of a donkey. And the caption scrawled underneath, translated, says, Alexaminos worships or adores God. And what the cartoon illustrates very clearly is the utter contempt and ridicule with which the Christian faith was viewed in the Roman Empire. And the chief reason for that ridicule was that the person Christians worshipped as God had been crucified, executed on a cross. For the Jew, it was even worse. If you could somehow transport a Jew from the first century to the 21st century, there are many things that would amaze him. But one thing would horrify him. The number of people wearing the symbol of a cross around their necks. He would probably recoil in horror and revulsion. Yet the early Christians, rather than seeking to downplay or cover up the cross of Jesus as politically incorrect, in fact magnified it and highlighted it. In his book, The Cross of Christ, one of the best on the subject, if you want a good book to read on what the cross is all about, John Stott gives us what I think is the only possible reason for this. He writes, The fact that a cross became the Christian symbol and that Christianity refused, in spite of ridicule, to discard it in favour of something less offensive can have only one explanation. It means that the centrality of the cross originated in the mind of Jesus himself. It was out of loyalty to him that his followers clung so doggedly to this sign. And writing some 20 years after the death of Jesus on the cross, Paul the Apostle reminds the Christians in the city of Corinth of the divisive message of the cross which he had proclaimed in their city when he had visited it several years before. He writes, Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And those whom God has called in the city of Corinth, through Paul's preaching of the cross, now made up the church of God in Corinth. But they were living in a Greek city with a sizable proportion of Jews who had a great influence, but also the Greek influence. And the problem with them was that with those kind of pressures on them from Greeks and Jews, they'd begin to lose focus and shift away from the cross. 
So in this letter, whose theme we've suggested is keeping first things first, Paul reminds them in the opening chapter of this letter of the first and most important thing for a Christian and a church, which if you lose, you will lose everything else. You must keep the cross of Christ at the centre of everything, despite what others may think. So he begins a new section in his letter with these words, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And what he writes then is just as vital for churches like ours in Edinburgh today. So our topic today then is the power of the cross. So we're going to look at the section and then reflect on it. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 2, 5. Now you'll need a Bible. It always helps in this church because we're focusing on, my opinion is, but what this book says. Uh, there are Bibles in the pews. If you can't get one, just reach over, ask someone to pass one to you. It's important to be able to follow where we're going. It's page 1144 if you have a pew Bible. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear, and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. This then is God's Word. We're going to reflect on uh, this evening. A few years ago I was up on the mound at the Free Church College for their annual lecture which was given by Dr. Donald Carson who's probably one of the leading New Testament scholars in and he said as he came to this passage in his inimitable Canadian style I will now give a life exegesis of the text and he 
he, he, he went on from there to speak for well over an hour in the most profound way. I don't know what you'll describe what I'm going to say this evening in around half of that time, give or take, probably give a few minutes. But let me at least try and touch on some of the main themes as you look at them in front of you. And I want to look at them in two sections. First from chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, and then the second section from verse 26 through into chapter 2. And you'll see things come on the screen which may help you to follow. First of all, I want to suggest as you look at uh, verses 18 to 25, that what he's saying here is there are two ways to live. Two ways and only two ways to live. There is the way of the world and there is the way of God. Here he describes it as the wisdom of the world or the wisdom of God. And these two ways are diametrically opposed to each other. Both in their content and where they ultimately lead. Those who follow the way of the world are described as perishing while those who follow the way of God are described as being saved. Verse 18. So it is of the utmost importance, if you're here this evening, that you check out which way you're following. Because if this is true, and you're on the wrong road, you may need to change course. Otherwise, you may end, literally, in disaster. So look at each in more detail. First of all, the way of the world. Uh, the word world in these verses, look for example at verse 20, the wisdom of the world, does not mean the created world, that is the universe around us. Rather it means the world of human beings, the society of human beings of which we're a part, their thinking and way of life, which is in rebellion against God and alienated from Him, just as individuals have turned their backs on God, seek to live their lives in independence of Him, so collectively human beings have done the same. That is what it means when it talks about the world. And so, instead of seeking to find our ultimate answers and resources from God, we are driven to seek them for ourselves or within ourselves with no reference to God, or at least no reverence before the one true God. We may worship gods, most people in the world do today, but they are gods of our own making. In contrast to the God of the Bible who creates everything and makes man in his own image, we do the reverse. We become the creators who make God in our own image. And this kind of human religion or wisdom is characterized by two features. The search for wisdom and the demand for power. And Paul particularly identifies two groups of people here, the Jews and the Greeks or Gentiles, the non-Jews. First of all, he says, the Greeks are searching for wisdom. Greeks look for wisdom. The Greek nation at that particular time was characterized by an insatiable hunger for knowledge. Herodotus, the Greek historian who lived four centuries before Christ, said of his own people, all Greeks were zealous for every kind of learning. They were absorbed in speculative philosophy. The names of their great thinkers are still known to us today and studied today. Their writings have come down to us down the generations and there is much we can profit from them. From their ivory towers of learning they looked down and despised everyone else who failed to appreciate their wisdom. They actually call them barbarians. It's not just a rugby team, it's actually people who weren't Greeks who weren't smart. And if you know your Greek uh, mythology, you'll know that they worshipped a whole pantheon of gods who were described in all two human terms because they were the product of human minds. Some of them saw through this fiction. 
But instead of seeking and submitting to the true God, they went in another direction. One writer puts it this way, Indeed, it was their very advances in learning that caused many to abandon the traditional gods and turn to Sophia, wisdom, the Greek word for wisdom. Their idolatry was to conceive of God as the ultimate reason, meaning, of course, what we deem to be reasonable. And so they loved wisdom. That's what philosophia means. And this again proves to be a dead end. David Pryor, another writer, comments, as long as the Greeks cling tenaciously to their search for wisdom along the tram lines of their own understanding, they will continue to go round and round in circles on the spiral that ultimately leads to destruction. Now, you do not need to look far in our own society today to find such people who match the Greeks of the ancient world. They are not only devoted to knowledge, which in itself is a noble ideal given to us because we're made in the image of God, but the pursuit of wisdom to understand ourselves and our world and where we fit in. And the big problem is not that. The big problem is a total exclusion of God from their thinking. Any possibility that he may exist from the equation. So that was the one group, the Greeks searching for wisdom. The other group he mentions are the Jews who had a demand for power. In contrast to the Greeks, look what he says, Paul says, Jews demand miraculous signs. Now the New Testament scholar Leon Morris comments, the Jewish people throughout their history were very matter-of-fact. They weren't very Greek. They showed little interest in speculative thought. Their demand was for evidence and their interest was in the practical. They thought of God manifesting himself in signs and wonders. Now in one sense, they were closer to God because God had revealed himself as a God who was actively involved in human beings and human history. The most famous event in which he'd intervened for the Jew was the Exodus. You know the story when he led the people of it. Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt to the Promised Land with all those miracles and plagues and everything that happened to Pharaoh and his people. But instead of becoming humble and thankful, they'd become proud and demanding. Instead of demonstrating God's love and justice and character to the world, they turned in on themselves. And the result was that God had allowed other empires to conquer them. And when Paul writes this, of course, the Roman Empire was at its height. And they were occupied, their own nation of Israel, God's people, were occupied by Roman forces. And so in this environment, they were not just asking God to step in, they were demanding that God repeated the Exodus again with even greater power and got rid of the Romans. They were demanding miraculous signs from God. And as such, they were as guilty of idolatry as the Greeks. For they too believed they could control God and use him to their own purposes. Instead of worshipping him as Lord, they expected him to fulfil their demands. Another writer comments, Gordon Fee, whose commentary on 1 Corinthians is probably the best if you want a good commentary on this book. They knew how God had acted in the past with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Their idolatry was that they now had God completely figured out he would simply repeat the exodus in still greater splendour. Now again, it is not difficult to find their modern counterparts today. You find them not just in non-Christian religions, where worshippers believe that their sacrifices can control God or win favours from him. Sadly, you find them much closer to home, and their influence presses in on us as Christians. The demand for power, that God does what we expect of him, and shows up when we demand it. I was preparing this this week, I had a rather busy week 
and I must switch off the, the, the sound system on my computer because every time an email comes, if it goes, please, and the great temptation is to stop what you're doing and think, oh, I wonder who sent me an email. Terrible thing to emails, aren't they? Sure. So you've got them. Appreciate this. And so I clicked it when the bleep came on, right in the middle of this. Uh, and this is what came up. An email came up with big, bold letters. Worldwide Ministries. Have you ever read Two Pork Chops? 500,000 purchased by churches and the winning combination, every house in an entire city being evangelized with this 12-minute gospel video. And further promising, upcoming news, new revolutionary soul-winning tool about to be launched along with a dynamic 26-week cell program for brand new converts, fast-tracking them into discipleship and evangelism. Wow! Now, I apologize if you know them, they may be sound orthodox people, but it kind of raised some alarm bells to me. What have I been doing all this time, you know, trying to do discipleship when I could be doing it zip, zip, zip like that? And the great danger is we want to control God, we demand power. And it's so easy to shift from worshipping God to controlling God. But of course, those who seek power can never succeed in controlling God any more than those who look for wisdom can succeed in God. He again says, these then are the two basic idolatries. They are ever with us, the demand for power and the insistence on wisdom. Always for us and from our point of view, they're still the basic idolatries of our fallen world. And the consequence, Paul says, is if you follow either of these tracks, you will end up perishing, separated from God forever. Because if you exclude him from your thinking in your life in this life, then you make a choice that affects your eternal destiny because you will not spend time with him there. It is the way to death, perishing. And I simply ask you this evening, are you following one of those two ways which lead in the same direction, to the dead end? Thankfully, there is an alternative way and an alternative destination. For Paul contrasts in these verses the power and wisdom of the world with the way of God. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I have, but with limited human understanding, it's hard to conceive of, really. But supposing, <coughs> supposing you were God and you had all the resources that created the universe and you created human beings in a world like ours, what sort of show would you put on to convince people? There are people in the world who say to God, show up, show us your power. What would you expect God to do? Laser light in the sky? Billions of angels streaming down from heaven? Or what kind of brilliant philosophy would you dream of? A God who knows everything to convince those who are seeking wisdom. I have no idea, really. I can think of good ideas, but don't really know, have any real idea of what would be the most convincing. What I am absolutely certain about is none of us would ever have dreamed of God's way of proving to the world his power and his wisdom. Not in a million years. Paul says God chose to demonstrate his power and wisdom through a person. But what he says in verse 24, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. God. God chose to show his power by coming into our world in weakness in the form of a tight, vulnerable being. And to grow up as a human being. Now, incredible though this sounds, it would not be entirely unexpected either to the Greeks or the Jews. The Greeks, through their legends, were familiar with the idea of God becoming mortal. 
And the Jews through their scriptures were expecting the promised Messiah or Christ to come and rescue them from their enemies. What was totally unexpected <coughs> was not the birth of Jesus, but the death of Jesus. And not just any ordinary death of old age or accident. The means of his death, he was nailed to a cross as a common criminal, the worst and most disgraceful kind of death in the ancient world. And Paul does not just say Christ displays the power and wisdom of God, but that Christ in his cross shows the wisdom and power of God. To the Christian, the death of Jesus was not some unfortunate end to a promising career, but the very heart of the message they proclaimed. There is a famous book on the cross written by a congregational minister in 1909, a man called P.T. Forsyth. And he says, Christ is to us just what his cross is. All that Christ was in heaven or in earth was put into what he did there. Christ, I repeat, is to us just what his cross is. You do not understand Christ till you understand his cross. And the Christian message is unequivocal. God displays his power and wisdom to their fullest extent in his son Christ dying on a cross. You see, Greeks would not have been offended by the thought of Christ being the power and wisdom of the world. In fact, Jews wouldn't necessarily. You remember when Jesus was on earth, people were amazed at his wisdom and his teaching. They were astounded by his miracles and by his power. And there are similarly many people today, it's very interesting to talk to people, what do you think about Christianity? They usually say, I'm pro-Jesus. Great man. Usually anti-church, but pro-Jesus. But what people don't like is the cross of Christ and all that it means. I remember many years ago when I first studied the Bible at university, in the secular university of course, as I always did in this country, uh, studying the Bible, um, one of my colleagues sitting alongside me, a fellow student, he said, wasn't a Christian, he said, I'm attracted to Christianity, but I just hate all this talk about blood and crosses and death and all that kind of thing. I, I like the teaching and all that kind of stuff, but I, I don't like this focus on the cross. But he got the point. There is a focus, a necessary focus on the cross. And that's what happened in the ancient days. To the Greeks, those who seeking wisdom, the cross seemed ridiculous. Foolishness. Unmitigated folly. Ridiculous to the Greeks. Even worse for the Jews, the cross was scandalous. A crucified man was not a demonstration of God's power, but the depth of human weakness. And it was also a stumbling block. Literally, the word there is something that trips people up. The Greek word is scandalon, from which we get scandal. For the Jewish law said, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. There was no way by their way of thinking that a man who died on a cross, nailed to a cross, could be the Son of God, the Messiah. A crucified Messiah was a contradiction in terms. But Paul, quoting from what Isaiah prophesied to prove his point, in verse 19 says, For it is written, God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Now he's not saying, of course, that God is against wisdom. He's not saying that God is anti-intelligence. He is not saying here, if you're a student, you better pack it up and stop studying, though some of you may feel today that you feel like doing that at this stage of the term of the year. I can still remember that. Now what he is saying is this. He's saying, God opposes those who think their intelligence is all they need. God opposes those who think their wisdom is all they need. So he chooses something which appears the most weak and foolish 
to confound those who think they're the strongest and the wisest. So he asked, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar, literally the student of the law of Moses? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And in verse 25 he concludes, for the foolishness of the cross, the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. So the message of the cross is ridiculous to those trusting in their own wisdom and scandalous to those relying on their own religion. But to those who are being saved, he says, Christ and his cross are God's wisdom and God's power. To those being saved, Christ and his cross are all that we need. And to follow this road means the road to life, to be saved in the process of being saved. It's the way to life. So there are these two and only two ways. The way of the world or the way of God. And I simply ask you this evening, which of those two ways are you committed to? Which of these two ways are you following? That's the first thing. But this letter, in its context, is written to people who were Christians. I guess many of us here are here because we're Christians. If you're not, you're equally welcome, and I hope you continue to search and look at the different ways that we've talked about this evening. But the Corinthians were Christians. They'd embraced the message of the cross. Paul had turned up in their city and preached to them, and they'd heard it and responded to it as God's way. But Paul's concern in writing this is that they were being heavily influenced, as we all are, by the pressures of society around them. The Greek pressure, the Jewish pressure, and they were shifting focus away from the cross. So he writes to remind them that they must keep first things first. They must keep the cross central. And in the verses that follow, from verse 26 to verse chapter 2, verse 5, I want to suggest that he shows there two indicators which show whether a church is cross-centered or off-centered. Two ways to tell then if a church is cross-centered or off-centered. How can you tell? Maybe you're a student, you've been to all sorts of churches and places. Most of us have been to different places. How can you pick it? Is there any way of telling whether a church is focused on what's important or has got a bit off-centered? Well, here's the first test. The composition of the congregation. Verses 26 to 31. After mentioning those whom God has called in Corinth, both Jews and Greeks, the congregation was made up of people who were Jews and Greeks, who believed that Christ was the power of God and the wisdom of God, Paul then says, have a look round at the social profile of the congregation. Interesting exercise. A few months ago, you may have been here, we did a survey of the congregation. One of the questions at the end was, what's your occupation? We've just got the survey report back, and it's very interesting. You'll be hearing a lot more about it, and maybe some changes progress, that's the word, in the next few months. But what's the social profile of the congregation? But what he says there, he says, look around the, look around the church, as you might this evening, you know, look around the people, what are they like? Where do they come from? Look at verse 26. Think of what you were, brothers, he says, when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. It turns out that in this church in Corinth, not many of the members were brilliant intellectuals or powerful movers and shakers in the city or members of the upper classes, just the opposite. Now, this does not mean that God is into positive discrimination. You know, he's anti-clever, rich, well-bred or powerful people. 
and pro the dim, poor, lower classes and dispossessed. No, what it means is this. If you are clever, there is always a greater danger that you'll rely on your brains. If you are rich, there is always a greater danger that you'll rely on your wealth. If you are well-bred, there is always a greater danger you'll rely on your pedigree. If you are powerful, you're more likely to rely on your own strength, rather than simply coming to the cross, and in the words of that lovely old hymn, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Now, in contrast, if you happen not to have been born too clever, if you've got little wealth, or come from a poor background, with little political or social clout, you will find it a lot easier to sing nothing in my hand I bring simply to your cross I cling because you believe it. You know it. And Paul says this is part of God's plan. Because you see, God's great plan is that no one can boast in front of him and say, I got into heaven because I'm especially clever. I got into heaven because I gave a lot of money in the offering this evening not happened yet but it will but as much as you like him but that's not the point I got into heaven because I come from a very well to do family I got into heaven because well you know I'm a powerful person I'm a certain influence in society so no one can boast Leon Morris again comments Paul emphasises once more the divine initiative he talks about whom God called the state of affairs he described did not come about because the only people who would interest themselves in Christianity were the depressed classes. It came about because God choose, chose to work his marvels through people who were, from the human point of view, the most unpromising. Now again, notice carefully what he says. He doesn't say, not any. He says, not many were wise, noble, influential. Several centuries ago, it's a very important woman called Selina who was the Countess of Huntingdon. She's actually, there are still churches called Countess of Huntingdon in connection churches she established. She helped in the great revival with Wesley and Whitfield and she used to say she was a, a very rich noble woman, very bright and very influential and she used to say I got into the kingdom of heaven by an M because it doesn't say not any, it says not many. And of course Paul himself, think about Paul. Paul was a very bright guy. He came from a very influential family. He certainly was pretty wealthy. And God used all those things, but not to earn his salvation. In fact, Paul says, all those things were garbage compared with the, the greatness, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. You find that in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Still, there are not many such people who follow Christ because they found it difficult to bow the knee and to relinquish their reliance on their own wisdom and power. And that is inevitably why in almost every church you find people, and you may be one of them, and you're most welcome, because some places, if a church is functioning properly, you will always find in it people who find no acceptance anywhere else. Because our world and our society, if you want to join the club, you've got to either have wealth or intelligence or influence or power or whatever it may be. No wonder Jesus said, and we often neglect it, how hard it is to get into heaven if you're rich. Very difficult. Why? Because people rely on their riches. But those who come to the cross, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're wealthy, 
uh, whether you're intelligent or not happen to be, whether you're influential or whatever. We come to the cross empty-handed. Lovely verse, verse 30. We receive from him righteousness, a right standing before God, holiness, being set apart for God's service, redemption, freed from the power of sin to live for him. So, in the end, we boast, but only in one thing. We boast in the Lord. And the worst thing, the worst sign on the individual level of a person who's never understood the grace of God is someone who boasts in anything else. And particularly in themselves. So no one can boast. So that's the first indicator, the composition of the congregation. If the church is cross-centered, it would attract people from that kind of background. They'll find a place and a welcome there. The second test is this. We're almost finished. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, the communication of the message. Marshall McLuhan, the Canadian sociologist and critic who said the medium is the message. It's actually the title of the book he wrote in 1967. That book wasn't original. The Apostle Paul says it here in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. After saying that the acceptance of God's acceptance of this is not based on human wisdom and power, he reminds them that he actually demonstrated that when he came to Corinth. Those few years before, when he turned up to preach. Here's the second test of whether a church is cross-centered or off-centered. How the preacher proclaims the testimony about God, as he calls it. Not relying on human wisdom, but on Christ and his cross. But what he says, he says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ and him crucified. Nor did he come to them full of confidence in himself and his own abilities. In fact, he says, I was trembling with fear and a sense of my own weakness. But he said, I was relying on the Holy Spirit's power. Now, what Paul has said has often been misunderstood by people and misapplied. He does not mean that he did not use his intelligence to reason and discuss with people and to present the truth of the gospel and the Christian message. Nor did he only preach about Christ's death and nothing else. In fact, when we come to 1 Corinthians, God willing, much later in the year, chapter 15 is all about the resurrection. Rather, what he is saying is that the heart of everything he preached is the cross of Christ, which is the heart of the gospel. And he didn't, as people did in those days, rely on rhetorical skills and oratorical tricks to convince people of the truth of his message. He said he recognized that only the Spirit of God can convince a person and therefore his reliance was on the spirit of God and the focus therefore was not on Paul but on Christ and that of course is where this section begins if you were here when John first of all our assistant pastor spoke in the last in the series the Corinthian church was all dividing up into personalities and groupings I follow Paul oh I follow Peter I follow Apollos he's very bright much better preacher than him And Paul is saying here, it's not the preacher that's the focus. It's Christ and his cross that is the focus. And here's the second test to look at. What is the focus in the church? How is the message communicated? And sadly, the same problem exists today. Groups are known for their leaders. Rather than Christ and Christ crucified. What is the focus of the message? And finally, we remind ourselves this has a crucial implication. 
because this is pretty unlikely, but were you to be convinced about Christi- Christianity because I happen to be a great orator, which I'm obviously not, then you'd go from here convinced that I'd convince you, and all you would need is someone smarter to convince you I was a fool, and it wasn't true. But if the Spirit of God convinces you, if you've been to the cross, and if God has drawn you by His Spirit and convicted you of your sin, and you've come to the cross, then you're relying not on man's wisdom when you go away. You're relying instead on God's power. And that to me is the only conviction about being a preacher. Because believe me, if I believed it was just dependent on my abilities, many of the times I would have packed up and gone home. I can only do it, and none of us can... I can't convince you about the process of Really, I can't. I can explain it as best I can. But relying on the Spirit's help that God draws people to themselves. To himself. It's the most wonderful thing. People say things like... So this is why I've had, I've had people at the door say to me, someone has been talking to you about me and told me all my circumstances. It's like I'm the only person there. You can't manipulate that. It's only God who draws people to himself. As you come to the cross, and I simply want to finish, we're going to have a... Philip will lead us in time singing and response and prayer. But I simply want to point you to the cross of Christ, because that's where it all starts. And I want to say, have you ever been to the cross of Christ? Have you ever really come and said, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling? Has God drawn you by His Spirit? Has He given you that conviction that your life is in a mess and you're going the wrong direction? You need to change course. And has God done that wonderful work in your life where you go from here? Anne described it. I remember when Anne came with your friend from Newcastle. She said, this is Anne. She wants to know about Christianity. Tell her all about it. Look after her. How do I do it? Lady, she's a nice lady to me. And thank you so. <laughs> but God drew it to himself. He's not relying on me or even Richard who had such an influence in her life. He's relying on Christ. That's what it's all about. And until you come to that place when God does this fantastic work and changes, Jesus says it's like being born again. God works in you by spirit and you come to the cross with nothing else except your sin. And you go away with a light heart, peace with God, a new life, convinced by God's power. But it's a cross that is at the center of everything. And as a church and as individuals, we need to be cross-centered keep coming again and again because we need God's forgiveness. You need to come the first time and find him for yourself. So we're going to sing about that. The musicians can resume their place and thank you again for those leading in singing and praying. Let's remain seated and sing what probably is one of the most famous hymns about the cross. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but lost poor contempt and all my pride. Think about what we've been singing about. Verse 2 says, Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. And then the response in the last verse, we think of the cross of Christ, see from his head, his hands, his feet, think of his great love. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns composed, so rich a crown, were the whole realm of nature mine that were an offering far too small 
love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all.